Hi, welcome to this VJSM podcast and I'm delighted to be with Andy Franklin Miller. We're going to talk about ACL injuries and Andy's a highly credentialed sports physician. He's at the Sports Surgery Centre in Dublin. He's got more than 10,000 Twitter followers as we record this interview. He has an active blog, does weekly research newsletters and he's so prominent in fact that if you Google AFM, sports medicine, then uh, his name comes up first on Google. So he's like those soccer players that are known by one name. His initials will get you to the number one spot on Google. And I'm looking forward to chatting about ACL rehab with you, Andy. Carrying on both embarrassed and flattered in the same breath. (laughs) Okay, so look, all our listeners, they know ACL injuries are a big problem. They know they're prevalent. What made you think that you should look at it differently and what inspired you to look at it differently? Well, we know that ACL injuries continue to be a big problem in terms of prevalence. And also, there's a lot of good research out there looking at really high-quality prevention programs. But as yet, that really hasn't crossed over. We know they work very well in a female population, not so well in a male population. And in Ireland, Gaelic football and hurling create a large number of ACL ruptures. And uh, at the sports surgery clinic, uh, Ray Moran, one of our leading ACL reconstruction surgeons would do over 700 bone patella bone reconstructions a year. And so from the rehabilitation point of view, we have a large number of patients to work with. And really at the start of um, last year, there were two papers that really made us start to to think a bit more about it. Peterson's paper, um, which really looked at surgeons' responses to when a patient is fit to return to play and really found that actually from a surgical point of view, the Lachmans and the time since the operation was really the most important factor. Isokinetic strength in terms of the hamstring quadriceps ratio was important, but not the things that we look at in prevention programs, the landing, the jumping, the cutting in terms of return to play. And a similar sort of time, Sarah Haynes wrote a fantastic Delphi study paper looking at the criteria for a return to play program and really found that um, you know, you could define many of the things about, oh, is, a, is a joint, is a test multiplanar, and is it specific to the sport? And those two things really started to get us to think about whether it's a really a strength issue or whether it's a more rate of force development. That, uh, that really is the focus here. Okay, and it sounds complex, but I know you're going to do a great job of explaining it. So why don't we just begin with the standard rehab, to put it in context. What would you say happens in you know, a standard setting, and then you'll go on to say how you do things differently. Sure, look, and and we'll not cover the very early days immediately post-surgery because that'll be familiar to many of our our listeners in terms of restoring range of motion and some soft tissue work to to alleviate pain and gradually get that range of passive and then active movement back. But really, our surgeons asked us a question, you know, how strong is strong enough? How strong does the knee need to be following rehabilitation? And and really, it's a very good question. You know, they're using a guide of an isokinetic hamstring quad ratio. Um, that's a machine where, you know, if you're not familiar with it, you sit locked into the machine and we can measure the resistance in terms of knee extension and knee flexion. And so the isokinetic hamstring quad ratio looks at the knee through a single plane of movement. That's knee flexion and knee extension. And although we can get an idea of force development and strength across that plane, What it doesn't look at is the ability to look at multi-joints at the same time. And more importantly, it can't look at the kinematics. And that really refers to the the joint angle as it changes. And that can be obviously internal, external rotation, flexion, extension, or indeed the kinetics. 
which is the rate of load across the, the joint in three planes. So this range of motion at multiple joints, not just the knee, for example, the hip and the ankle, and then you're saying there's also the rate of force development, how strong, how quickly someone can develop force? Yeah, absolutely. And those relate back to those great injury prevention studies in terms of landing um, drills and hopping and, and balancing. And it's less about necessarily neuromuscular control or absolute strength, but more about actually the coordination of those, uh, those movements in terms of the load through the ACL. Atta Kapoor wrote a fantastic paper in clinical biomechanics, really trying to get an idea of where the forces through the knee joint go immediately before injury. She was able to use cadaveric tissue, so could test the joint destruction. And although we know the timing sequence of these multiplanar events, um, one of the most critical factors we believe is internal tibial rotation. But of course, that's secondary to knee abduction. And the thing that controls most of knee abduction really is the hip external rotators, the glutes and the hamstrings. We know the forces are very high in the knee uh, at that critical point of loading. They're over 4,000 newtons that are across, applied across a very short space of time, milliseconds. Um, but to get control of these, it is the rate of that force development less than the absolute strength. So just uh, take me through that tibial internal rotation and the abduction one more time. Just paint that picture as I'm driving. I've got to deal with the traffic. So just one more time would be great. So when I'm looking at that as a landing movement, just take me through. Sure. So there's th three components here. The first one with the foot flick fixed on the ground is that internal tibial rotation of the tibia about the knee. The second force is the knee abduction moment. And then followed by that is tibial translation. That's AP glide of the tibia. So the Lachman's test to, to make it into a clinical scenario. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm looking at that roll bar video that we've all seen a million times of the woman uh, doing exactly that um, while she's playing handball. Absolutely. And look, and so, so this is obviously complex stuff in a 3D laboratory. And our, our surgeon set us a challenge. They said, well, look, that's fine. If, if isokinetic dynamometry isn't the test, so if you don't want us to look at hamstring quad ratio in terms of deciding return to play, give us a quantifiable functional test, something that's got numbers. Um, that, that we can benchmark someone against. Okay, that's good. So that was the challenge to move away from the one plane testing. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, this is part of a process. So at the moment, a patient who would, would be followed up immediately post-surgery, and these patients are recruited at the pre-surgery phase, um, would, in, would initially have tests at the two, six and nine month period following their reconstructive surgery. The idea is that we can capture a database of landing tests, so a step-down landing, a single-leg squat, a counter-movement jump, and a sagittal and a coronal hop. And just let's go through those. How do you do the sagittal and the coronal hops? So those tests would be off the force plate in a 3D lab. So we'd be using a set of reflective markers on bony landmarks. And those reflective markers are picked up by 10 Vicon cameras which are, enable us to use a computer algorithm to define a, a joint. And if we can define the hip, the knee, the foot and the ankle, along with the torso, we can calculate the forces and the range of movement of those joints in these real tests. So a sagittal forward hop would be a one-legged hop onto a plate, and a side hop would be over a 15-centimetre hurdle, starting on one leg, hopping over and absorbing the landing. Okay, and let's just run through those five tests in one order just for folks who are going to try this in their clinic. 
because you don't have to have all the fancy markers if you're doing this in rehab, right? No, sure, absolutely. And in fact, in the early stage, the two-month tests, we just use video rather than the 3D laboratory. And so we would start with a single leg squat, okay. then a drop, then a drop landing off a 30-centimeter box, and then the sagittal and coronal hop, along with a standing vertical jump. Okay, and the sagittal and coronal hop often to be referred to as a forward hop and a side hop, right? Absolutely. Perfect. I'm from Australia, so I have to go easy on me. So that's fantastic, Andy. So we've got those set of exercises, and obviously our expert physios are, are very comfortable with that. So take me on from there. So then the, the extra thing I think that comes in at the nine months in trying to define these functional tests are really cutting. And we looked in, in determining cutting. That really means, from our point of view, a change of direction off one foot. We know that's one of the, the injurious mechanisms. And so we've taken a lot of the available data out there and defined two cuts, one at 45 degrees, which is a decision cut so we can run and then we know which direction the athlete's going to move in. And the second is an indecision cut where a series of lights will trigger in order to direct the athlete either to go right or left off that leg. So really, they're the ultimate return to play tests, but very quantifiable in the lab. Excellent. So in your lab, you'll be measuring those movements. I mean, feel free to just share those types of numbers or what you're looking for. And then let's hear what someone in a clinic who doesn't have the setup you have should do when they're assessing those cuts, for example. Sure. So at this stage, it's very early days in terms of the, the analysis. And the, the end goal here really would be to have an anthropometrically adjusted um, result, which would tell us how what the resultant force across the knee has to be. There's often a lot of talk about symmetry as to whether the uninjured knee is the target for these things. And often we're challenged as to whether that's adequate or indeed um, inadequate. We know there's a recurrence rate in the contralateral leg in many ACL injuries. And so those absolute numbers, we've, we've really yet to clarify. Having said that, right at the start here, you know, in the early tests, we're using video footage in order to look at the movements of these tests. And so often, as you progress through them, a lot of these abnormalities are very visible. Um, with an iPhone now, you can take 120 frames per second. And really, that's excellent footage, excellent quality in order to look at these movements, even in relatively high speed. Okay, and the data you'll get will be adjusted for patient size and potentially you'll be able to make it sport-specific. Um, so that's interesting. And people will be able to do use their iPads and iPhones in the clinic and have video set up. So that's perfect. And then you're saying you can eyeball some of the limitations. What are examples of things you see? John, so one of the very common things we, we see is almost like positive Trendelenburg tests and the rate of gluteal function and the rate of gluteal activation I think is commonly recognized as allowing femoral rotation, uh, which exposes the knee joint itself and often progressive drills. And I'll go through some of those when I speak at the isokinetic conference in Milan later this year in terms of developing that, that level of neuromuscular control and the force development uh, really results in improved visible as well as quantifiable changes in these tests. And do you see big knee valgus as well? at times? Certainly in the drop landing and the stop jump uh, test, we certainly do see a, a high degree of knee valgus in those patients who are struggling. But I think the control issue there is more proximal. We know that one of the, the factors there, uh, certainly in a couple of papers last year, really looked at hamstring stiffness. And that really reflects the rate of 
force development in the hamstring, but also the whole posterior chain, the lumbar extensors, the gluteal muscles and hamstring working together rather than looking at that knee joint in isolation. Great. And clearly a big emphasis on the hip and hip stabilizing now with patellofemoral pain as well, not just ACL rehab. Andy, and is generally, is it a, what could we say those posterior stabilizers are weak or do you think it is not just weakness, it can be coordination, you know, the timing of how they act? Well, look, I think there's two things at play here. I think in a, in a highly conditioned athlete, they're unlikely to be weak. It's much more a case of actually programming that rate of force development. Although in, in many less conditioned athletes, and certainly a lot of our patients suffering from lower back pain, it really is a case of weakness of the posterior chain. And therefore, a, a guided strength and conditioning program really is the focus for those patients, less so, I think, in the elite end. Okay. And just take us through that posterior chain one more time. The elements are? John, so posterior chain really is the combination of the hamstring muscles, the gluteal muscles, and the lumbar extensors and multifidus really working together almost as a sling around the, the back of the body, really to extend the hip and back. So should we move on to treatment? So you've done these assessments. Are there some common patterns that you'll um, prescribe different sort of treatment exercises for? Absolutely. And, and really, I think the, the thing here is, and one of the skills that we're really trying to develop in our, in our rehabilitation team is that of coaching. We use video feedback in an awful lot of these cases and really... The, the test itself is part of the training. And so looking at the the individual slow motion replay of video footage, we're able to use that in a series of build up exercises, um, which we can then layer on top of each other to try to improve performance. A lot of these are, are based around initially marching drills, looking at control of that posterior chain and, and the speed of action in terms of the ground reaction force and then progressing on to landing control drills, a hop and land on the ground before progressing on to more loaded challenges. Okay, and I can't help mentioning your military background might have something to do with those marching drills, but we can move right on. So there's the marching drills, there's the drop and landing. What's the progression from there? Oh, look, we're spending a lot of time looking at turning and really in the foot position during the turn and working very hard to move the patient's uh, pelvis at the same time as the leg so to try to reduce the corkscrew type motion around the knee. So really it's an awareness of how to turn, almost sinking before turning as a drill, and really making sure that the foot position moves with the knee rather than against it. Cool. And I'm conscious that um, you want to leave some material for folks who are coming to the Isaac Kennedy Conference in Milan, the Science of Football Conference in March. But um, I think we've got a picture there of a lovely progression, some innovations very good innovations in terms of evaluating the patient using video, using video in the feedback to the patient and having functional exercises. Should we just go through one clinical scenario, sort of a typical case if a patient, one of our listeners is thinking, okay, I've got someone who's at say two months, six months and nine months post ACL, what would you advise? Let's say a new grad because our experts all know this, but what would you advise for the two month patient, two month post ACL? Sure. I, the, the difficulty with this, Karim, is always that the patient must come first. And so we all know that each patient progresses at a different rate, at a different speed. And really, it's a case of, of at what stage they're, they're ready to go. But at two months, most of our patients are able to do a single leg squat and a basic hop. And actually, really, it's the focus on the control of those movements, both of a sit back squat, really getting that glute activation and glute stability 
in order to control the movement, thinking about the patient pushing their foot into the floor as the feedback mechanism um, while sitting back onto a box squat. Um, and then in terms of the landing, almost thinking of that stiffness, that, that trying to use the whip-like effect of the hamstring button back in terms of a, of a coil. And as you say, look, I'll, I'll be able to use some visual examples. It's much easier to do in person in uh, Isokinetic in Milan. And then I get that sort of variability. So just, you know, an assessment at six months, just a typical patient? At six months, we'd hope that most of our patients were able to start the cutting movement. And here, really, our focus is on that ability to sink into a turn and drive out of it, keeping the pelvis and thigh aligned. And so rather than allowing that high degree of internal rotation of the femur about the pelvis, we're really focused on moving the pelvis in a cutting turn with the leg, trying to keep that stability. It also, it also helps us to increase the power production, which is obviously a goal in terms of return to sport. What are the commonest limitations at nine months when someone isn't doing super well? What do you see then? We, we found great variability. And at some, some of the, the patients we'd expect to do very well at six months um, have struggled with the indecision cut at nine. And really, it's the highest level of neuromuscular challenge in terms of not knowing whether you're going to go right or left. And often the problem here at nine months is the patient's already returned to sport in some capacity. And so feels as if they're ready to return to play. And so there's often a challenge and a, a compromise between the strength and conditioning coaches and the, and the coaching staff and the rehabilitation team at which point that crosses over. And so really the biggest challenge between that six and nine month point is actually understanding the limitations of the rehabilitation where and the ultimate end goal. And, and really that's what our surgeons have, have asked us to do in terms of providing a visual progression as well as a quantifiable figure out of this research moving forwards. When's the person ready to return to play? That's the golden question. And I think, you know, look, in 18 months' time, we'll have a lot of data of the, uh, using these functional field tests to know whether or not um, they're reliable, both in terms of returning a patient to maximum straight line and multidirectional speed, but also reducing the risk of re-injury, trying to combine some of the injury prevention work with our return to play work. At the moment, we most of our patients uh, uh, look are, are almost ready at nine months. The issues are, of course, this indecision cut and its value in terms of determining a return to performance rather than a return to play. The return to play element in terms of multidirectional acceleration, deceleration movement often occurs around a six-month point, but, but true resilience we've really yet to prove. I'm going to push you there, Andy. So our people are nearly getting to work and they want to know, what you do when the player is saying, am I ready, the physio, you and the physio are going to work as a team to do this and the player, of course, and the three of you are chatting. What, how does the conversation go? So as the, as the patients progress through these tests, it's been very helpful in terms of actually having some tangible data. And, and so we are trying to identify it before it gets to that nine-month point. So at each stage, the two-month, six-month tests, we provide an awful lot of written and visual feedback. And so we're able to guide the either the referring physio or accompanying physio along the way. And so actually we're finding often the patients who've been through the full program here um, are returning to play comfortable with those decision tests and indecision tests at nine months. The difficulty is, of course, trying to demonstrate the injury prevention mechanism there to them. And, and once, once the patient sees that movement and sees that lack of control, it often doesn't take much more convincing. So really, Andy, it's a team effort to decide when the person goes back to play, and I suspect you've got a strong team at the sports surgery clinic. 
Uh, look, absolutely. Yeah, our head of performance rehab is Ender King, who's currently doing his PhD in this very topic at University of Roehampton. And our um, head biomechanist, uh, Dr. Brendan Marshall, really runs a laboratory team who are under increasing pressure and and uh, respond admirably. Um, the ACL team themselves, our Marit Unheim and, uh, and Barry McEntee, are delivering an awful lot of our uh, testing and rehabilitation, uh, looking after Ray Moran's patients. Thanks, Andy. And we know the risk of recurrence, even in super surgery and super rehab, is 5 to 10%, both on the same leg and the other leg, as you mentioned. Do you tell the folks about this as part of your conversation when they're getting back to sort of preempt and make sure they don't think that they've got 100% guarantee? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, the, that's where a lot of the injury prevention work and, and the great work that's being done is really helping us in terms of actually defining that risk and defining the movements, the neuromuscular control. And really, it's enabled us to, to target um, those those return to play activities and actually try to give a staged load um, across that. But it's certainly high on the list of the early discussion at the six month point, particularly less so at the nine month. Thanks, Andy. And just before we leave ACLs for today, there is this issue that not everyone who ruptures their ACL needs an ACL reconstruction. Do you think that can be the case? Sure, absolutely. And, and Richard Froebel's paper certainly uh, suggests that it's possible. And I think, look, the, the speed at which the muscles need to work in terms of the multidirectional high load stop start activity really depends on the level I think the patient's trying to get back to. At the very highest level, I think it's very difficult in terms of maintaining those very high forces through the knee uh, without significant additional work. For the recreational multidirectional athlete, it certainly could be possible, but it would take a significant effort both from a strength and conditioning point of view and regular drills in terms of that higher load force development. Thanks a lot, Andy. You've been listening to Andy Franklin-Miller. We encourage you to engage with both Andy and BJSM underscore BMJ on Twitter. Thanks for all the positive feedback about uh, the podcasts on Twitter. Special shout out to Adam Meekins and Tom Goon, who are tremendously supportive and the UK physios have really embraced this uh, channel. Feel free to send your suggestions about podcasts you'd like to hear and questions you'd like us to ask our guests. Thanks for listening to BJSM Podcasts.